Hello folks, how are you? Edith here, bringing you another episode of my film music podcast, Soundtracking. This time round, we've got a couple of documentary makers whose work I genuinely adore. I first met Ian Bonnot and Peter Ettige following the release of their fantastic debut feature, McQueen, based on the life of British fashion designer Lee Alexander McQueen. Now Ian and Peter have turned their attentions to Paralympians with the phenomenal Rising Phoenix, which is streaming on Netflix right now and you really should go and check it out. Scored by our old friend Daniel Pemberton, Rising Phoenix plays like a superhero movie, a device that really hits the mark. And it's with one of Daniel's cues that we begin Victus. Thank you so much for doing this today. And I know we've got the BAFTA thing later as well. So yeah, it's kind of like a warm up for you, which is great. It actually feels like nothing these days to do those because actually we saw, you know, it's so easy. You don't need to go somewhere. You hardly waste any time moving. That's the thing I like about the lockdown is actually not having to move around so much. You know, I can be there for the family a lot more and I enjoy that. Your film Rising Phoenix is, is extraordinary. It's so many things. It really, really is. It's such an emotional journey and I love that kind of idea of them being the real superheroes in the world because it does give you all those emotions that you feel, you know, watching a superhero movie of the kind of anger and the and the the drive, but the emotion and, and so much more. And being the misfits, isn't it? Isn't it with superheroes? Many times you the misunderstood. Why am I different? Why are people They're against the outsider. me? Somewhere? Yeah, absolutely. What was the catalyst for telling the story? What was the where did the journey of this film start? Well, should I start with McQueen? And then you can, you can cover it. <laughs> yeah, you like, you like doing that. Yeah, it didn't start with McQueen, but the, the, what we had this, you know, we were looking at one of one McQueen show in particular, which we knew was going to be a centrepiece of that film about McQueen. And it was the show which ended with Shalom Harlow being paint, spray-painted by robots. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we knew that was going to be a set, a, a set piece in the film. So we couldn't do the opening of the film, but we were absolutely the opening of that show, but we were fascinated by it because it started with a former Paralympian, double amputee, with these wooden legs that McQueen had sort of like, he'd done these intricate carvings on. And no one realised initially that she was an amputee, I don't think. But then when it became known that, that this was this, that this woman, Amy Mullins, was, uh, was a double amputee, there was this huge thing that we kind of like really... I don't know why, but we, we got kind of quite hooked on it because the controversy was that McQueen had, um, you know, people said, well, you're, you're, you're exploiting disabled people and disability. And McQueen said, no, I'm not. I'm empowering. Just talk to Amy herself. And Amy Mullins, who is just, she's amazing. She's an actress. And she's um, uh, now, she's an actress. And she's done these incredible TED Talks, which we listened to at the time, about being... A, a double amputee and her life story in the Paralympics. And we got a bit psyched. We went down that rabbit hole for a couple of days um, and then realised that it wasn't going to fit naturally into this film. So, but it stayed with us. And then when we were approached with the idea to do something about the Paralympics by Greg Nugent and John Batsett, the producers, we just kind of like, obviously remembered that immediately. And, mm. and, and that became very much a sort of like a, a starting point for how we thought about, about the Paralympics. From that point where you then, you know, you got, you, you're going to tell a story, but then deciding on how you would tell it, because the, the film is an, is an adventure. It's, a, it's an emotional adventure. It's, a, it's an exciting adventure, but it's a truthful adventure. And that's, you know, there's, there's so much truth that comes out in this film. 
In terms of working you, out how you would tell the story, was that quite easy to, to kind of work out? Did you mention how the project came to us, Peter, yet? Or? No, no, not, I mean, a little bit. I said that John and Greg had, 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 brought, the, had brought the project to us. Um, but but they were you know they were looking at loads of different directors and they asked us to sort of how would we tell the story? Yeah. I mean they never said it, it was a pitch, but we kind of find out it was it was a pitch. Yeah. Uh, and the straight away there was the I mean yeah Peter mentioned Amy, which I remember Dazed and Confused front page in the nineties late nineties where she was there with a the blades. Now remember that's a striking image that uh, that we you know we both had and and I think. For me, from my advertising and short form background, the Superhuman campaign in 2012 was a massive campaign, what yeah. they had Channel 4 had done. So visually, I think I had never felt, after that commercial in 2012, I had never looked at anyone with a disability the same way. And it suddenly was like, you know, it's those emotions that you feel watching somebody else's work and how it changed your own perspective where Peter and I received that project and we said, like, we need to top that up. They're not superhumans. They're above that. And, and I think there's this idea that even in McQueen, we always like to, to borrow from drama or scripted and genre film. You know, there's, there's, we find it a bit sad that many times documentary, they just categorize the documentary. And a lot of people, in, in, I'm talking in the, the broader public, is like, mm-hmm. oh, documentary, it's either TV things or it's a highbrow or it's intellectual. But what we did with McQueen, we like things to be visual, entertaining, shocking a bit punk and all the rest of it so it was the same attitude we took with that and i think the idea of making it a superhero movie and them to be like the marvel avengers came straight away so we we kind of devised it like this to start with as a concept and that you know that doesn't tell you answer your question about exactly how we told the story but what was incredible is our first interview with the first athlete which was jean-baptiste alès the french paralympian long jumper was in 20 minutes, half an hour. He doesn't speak much English, a bit like me. So we were talking in French about it. Peter is fluent in French, so, he, you know, we, we could talk. And suddenly, he started talking about them being the Avengers and getting coming together and saving the world. And me and Peter, we were like, and that was, you know, after talking about, you know, he had witnessed his mom being almost decapitated in front of him, him being chopped in pieces. You know, I don't want to tell too much if people haven't seen the film. So his own personal story was crazy. So he was like, amazing and we had chosen him because he had this amazing you know immigration adoption traveling the world to be able to be ways anyway mm-hmm. but then him talking about the avenger assemble was just like oh my god so that's the time that the the framework conceptually and what we asked him the question was how what does it feel like when you all get together at the paralympics and he kind of like said well you know what you know the last avengers movie <laughs> kind of thinking okay and i literally had goosebumps when he was you know because i was behind the monitor watching him I kind of thought, okay, there's the, you know, we weren't idiots to, to have had that, that direction. Yeah, that's an amazing insight from you in terms of how they genuinely feel. That's so wonderful. You know, many people always think that everything is structured, but movies, there's a lot of instinct. Drama, the instinct comes on set because you work from a script. So a lot of the writer's instinct is being there. We write a little bit, but most of writing is in the edit. And when we interview people and when we shoot slightly like you, you jamming in a Q&A or, or uh, you just jamming. And, and many times our instinct to start with come good. Maybe we're lucky. Maybe we're right. I mean, that said, what was very clear as we started on it was that you had this sort of story between London 2012, which is like the triumph. You know, it's an amazing sort of like, you know, and, and, and Bebe Villa, who was going to be, oh. we knew was going to be one of our heroines. And she's like a little teenage t- torchbearer. She's, she's like, you know, she's like a, a superhero before she becomes a superhero, really. She's at that stage. So we had London and we had her there and we had this fantastic spectacle. And then we had this sort of like Rio should be even bigger than London, but it turns into a near catastrophe. Our para-Avengers, as we call them, have to kind of like come together again and save the games. So we kind of like knew we had that, we had that sort of superstructure to work within. And then the difficult thing was that we, we absolutely wanted to have the story of Gutman and the origin story of the yeah. movie. That had to be there because it was it moved us so much when we first learned about it. And then, you know, we just had to think, well, how are we going to interview? How are we going to not interview? How are we going to weave each of the Paralympians into that sort of bigger structure? And that 
Ian is exactly right. That's where, you know, we didn't really know what we were doing when we were making the film, but we, we had a sense that one way or another with our brilliant editor, Otto Burnham, We'd be able to kind of make it work in the edit. Baby's extraordinary. I mean, the tears as as I was watching, you know, her her final at the Olympics. And, you know, even though you know the outcome of a lot of these situations that you're covering, you know, be it the, you know, the London Olympics or the the whole kind of, you know, shitstorm around Brazil and all that kind of stuff. But watching her and having gone on this journey that you that you've crafted of her story through this film, I was in bits of kind of, of joy, of just pride. It was, it was incredible. What a phenomenal woman. Oh. Yeah, and, and, and I remember when we watched it on YouTube, uh, Victory, it, it, it's one of the highlights of Rio. You know, she's been, become a sort of icon within the... In Italy, she's very well known and she's took on almost... A, she's a personality there. You know, mm. she's, she's used in the media a lot and... She's she's actually the face. She's one of the face of Nike. Nike actually has been very good. Tatiana and her are. But when we watch the video and we watch her win, I, I, I remember both of us being like, "Oh my God, that needs to be our ending." She's so emotional as a human being. She you can really see that winning means more than just winning. There's mm. a sort of you know overcoming adversity, overcoming. Her dreams being shattered as a little 11 years old girl getting meningitis and having to yeah. stop and suddenly forgetting about sports because what can you do when you don't have any arms and legs? But when you see her as a woman now, what she studies, the way she talked, the way a vision for the future, a vision for sports in Italy, a vision of Italy, a vision of the world is wow, you're like, wow, my God, you know, yeah. arms, no arms, you're a phenomenal human being. Yeah, exactly. I was crying just thinking about her again. She's just. She's extraordinary. You have the wonderful and brilliant and Einstein-like Daniel Pemberton, who does an incredible job on the score on this as well. And, and just hearing him talk about it, he's so proud of being part of this project. You know, and he's kind of, uh, we've been lucky to have him on the podcast and he's a mad scientist when it comes to kind of, you know, his kind of craft and creations. He's brilliant. What was it about Daniel in particular, you know, his work that you wanted to, to get him on board with this project? And when did you start speaking to him about it? Oh my God! Well, that is quite. It's quite. We 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 knew music. I mean, Ian and I love music and in, in film, and we'd sort of like you know working with Michael Nyman on on the Queen was such a a big thing for us. And, mm. But that wasn't. That was kind of like almost like his music was archive. It was all his library, really. And we wanted to work with a, a composer to create an original score for this film. And so we were looking from the almost like day one. We were listening and talking about composers. And I heard Daniel's score from Gold, which was, is just amazing. I got very excited. And at, at literally the same time, Ian was listening to King Arthur and Spider-Man. And, you know, we couldn't believe we, it was the same composer. I remember, I would always, sorry, Peter, to interrupt you, but I would yeah. always remember in the BAFTA when we had a, a little time there for McQueen, they were sitting behind us. The Spider-Man, yeah, right behind us, and we didn't win. But suddenly, those guys jump and stuff, and you look at them, and it's such a nice team. And we chatted with them and stuff. And my kids, you know, Spider-Man versus the Spider-Verse was their favorite film for a long time, and we listened to the soundtrack even before this film was on the on the radar. Yeah, it's really it's a it's a great score that. Daniel is that he can do you know no two Pemberton scores sound remotely the same and we knew that we were going to need a very broad palette for this Mm. film that we were going to have to go back into the past that we were going to be 
doing a number of different sports and we also wanted you know we wanted to we wanted it to be angry and percussive when it needed to be and you know not too sort of sentimental and Daniel had you know you just kind of think this guy can do anything and including producing an entire score in COVID I mean which was incredible but but we stalked him I mean I should say I should say because you know Daniel was in the middle he'd just done he'd just done the um, Mother's Brooklyn yesterday was being released he was about to do Harley Quinn I think there was something else as well that he had and he sort of like he didn't answer initial emails because he's just was snowed under and so we kept emailing we got each of the producers to email them we got our main producer to get Richard Curtis, who was ostensibly an executive producer on the film, yeah. to kind of like, you know, to get in touch with him. And then finally, I think Daniel, under all of this pressure, thought, I'd better have a meeting with them, you know, <laughs> before I tell them to go away. And I remember, we, we, I mean, the two of us, we can talk, as you can see, and we, and we just pitched our hearts out in, in, in his studio. And there was one thing that got him, which was when we said we didn't want it to be like a sort of, a sentimental score that we wanted to have some anger in it mm-hmm. and he started I could see that he was starting to get a bit excited but he still wasn't you know still very very busy and I think we we wound up stalking him uh in LA because we were there for something else and <laughs> we found out he was there so we went showed him some sequences from the film the sequences when we went to his studio he he works in Bermondsey he lives and work in his studio and, you know, he lives and work in it. Yeah. He doesn't leave the place. It's chaos in that, that building. It's just like, I always joke about the fact that if there was this character in Friends, you know, the TV show, that was a composer, this would be what his, his kind of, you know, crib would look like because there's this very fine line between work and kind of home life. And it just stuff everywhere. <laughs> it's mental. How he gets anything done in there is extraordinary. But I think what... I pissed him off when I said, Do you know, you could just get someone to help you clean and tidy yeah. up, you know. Yeah. I think knowing how successful you are, you can probably afford it. He says, yeah, but yeah, he's, he's great. But yeah. we went down to see him and our brilliant editor, Otto, uh, which Peter mentioned before, we had shot with Jean-Baptiste again and we had his voice and we had shot the movie moment with him. We called the movie moment those sort of cinematic, uh, heightened, uh, visually heightened uh, sequences. And we had cut a three, four minute sequence about Jean-Baptiste's story and his background in Burundi and we played that to him. Um, and we had used, you know, we, we didn't use all of his music then, but he had done some great sound effects. And I can see, we could see that he just sort of clicked. Ian's absolutely right. I think the real moment was when we showed him the Jean-Baptiste. I mean, you'd have to ask him, but he, we, he, we showed it to him. And I think he got what we were trying to do and how we were trying to, you know, heighten the visuals. And, and it wasn't a kind of like a, a, a conventional documentary in any respect. It was a film. It was a piece of storytelling. And I think he, you know, the mood of it and the, and the story of Jean-Baptiste and the emotion of it just caught him. And the other thing that caught him was that Otto had used this sort of like, royalty-free sort of sound of a, which was like a kind of a bell-like effect mm-hmm. um and as soon as daniel heard he said what's that sound what's that sound and and can you and get me that was going can, can you get me that sound and you know and um and so we did eventually we i mean he pushed us that was the only thing he pushed us about we kept, kept pushing him but he was where, where's that sound and so we sent it to him and this was all sort of like, I guess, in the autumn. And then in early December, he sent us what he called a doodle. And it wasn't a doodle because when we investigated it, it was so rich and dense and full of different stems. And, mm-hmm. But anyway, he sent us this doodle of a track, which he had, didn't, it wasn't a picture, so it wasn't sort of specific at this point, but it was entirely built out of the sound of this bell that he had sampled and turned into this sort of like very eerie ghost ghost-like effect um, that became almost like, you know, that in a sense, a large part of the score was developed from that, that motif.
then that just shows you, you know, how he works and how he kind of like gets hold of the. He also asked us for all the sounds of guns going off and beats that start races. And he worked those, you know, they're, they're in the score at different, at different points, but very, you know, amazing. As you say, completely an Einstein and a, and a kind of like the flat in Bermondsey, the studio is like a sort of sonic, mad sonic laboratory, really. <laughs> What's nice as well is that we just received an email that he sent to Netflix. He's still pushing them. Do you see what I mean? It's not like, oh, I've done my job. That's yeah. it. If yeah. really, he, I, I'm not, I, I don't know personally he's like this on every film. I know he's got <laughs> beef with certain streamers about yeah. titles and things yeah. like this and stuff. Quite rightly. <laughs> Quite rightly. Um, but you can really see that he takes so much pride into the work that he's like, the he music cares. Yeah, and especially with the final track where, you know, we took a lot of, you know, there was a lot of conversation to try to do a track with someone famous, the Coldplay, the Stormzy names, all three around. And we were always keen on keeping identity within the world of disability. So he worked with a lot of classical musician disability, with disability to actually re-record some of the sound for the soundtrack. And then for the final track, he worked with a collective called Creep Up. And they're not famous, but they all have, you know, quite severe disability, cerebral palsy, or um, Tony's got, she's, she's had um, a stroke, so she's paralyzed with one side. And the texture of their voices just completely fascinated Daniel, and he found that they had uh, 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 an emotion as well as almost a sound style or texture that was completely different from anything he had heard before there's a young boy walking through obstacles cut up from all the surgery prosthetic picture perjury telling me i'm normal but normal they never really made me see they always painted me discriminated but levitated through all the hated scenes so i redrew how they made it sit but that's what you feel around vultures and all the fatal schemes. They want to label me a cripple, that's the way it seems. Take away my right to pursue a normal life in Indeed, for me, I must proceed and shine bright like the sun. Even though I know the darkness will come, it's all temporary. I can be legendary, because I will never stop believing in me. It doesn't matter what you think I should be. See, I am what I am. I'm the truth. I'm disabled. I'm amazing. Understand? Don't you ever underrate me. so strongly that that song should be pushed more he keeps on pushing everyone us included to say look guys we should still carry on doing that he doesn't have to do that yeah. you know he could just be like you know sometime he had to hang up on us because he had steven spielberg and Harun sorkin on on the phone you know how rude of him but you know it's 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 just it's not about 
what you become is how much it's actually where you come from and how much yeah. you care and that love and that care and he's yeah i mean uh, you know that he drives me crazy sometimes because he's very opinionated but i have 100 million respect for him yeah yeah like likewise i, I mean you know and i think that's the thing is you know he, t- he told that he warned us when we when we really started working together you know if i have an idea I'm just, I'm the best salesman of it and I'm not going to leave you alone. And that's, yeah. that, that's true. And, you know, it was a fantastic process with him. But, you know, there were points where, where we disagreed or it's hard for a composer as well because you come in, you come into the film, even though you started quite early, we had a lot of temp music. We tempt the film entirely with Daniel, um, with his previous scores. But, but a few hand seamers as well. A good one hand zimmer. One hand zimmer, <laughs> one, one bit of Max Richter. Was, it wasn't a cornfield track, was it, from Interstellar? Because that's like, yeah. No, no, no. But we didn't need to do that because almost the, the second thing he composed was his own cornfields theme for Tatiana, which is yeah. such a beautiful theme. thing is like it feels like he's really created this kind of soundscape that it has wonderful synergy throughout the entire film so it feels like it's it's beautifully connected but then on the other hand it still has this kind of individual kind of texture to each yeah, different identity almost to each other. Absolutely, of the and, and sometimes he managed to actually do a sonic Avenger assemble where he threw a little bit of all of them towards the end to just create those 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 final track. I I, I totally agree. It's, it's, and, it's, and it's fascinating. And then from one end, in terms of the kind of power of the music, you have this kind of gorgeous kind of tenderness element to to some of it but then you also have this kind of really clever play on a kind of superhero theme tune type thing as well Uh, absolutely
remember Peter when he says like, okay, I'm gonna give you a bit of music. I can't compo I can't compose the whole film. And then towards the end, we just realized the film is an hour and 42 minutes, and he created an hour, 41 minutes, and 37 seconds of soundtrack. So literally, <laughs> you know, some of it we didn't use. There might be a minute or two of silence, but not yeah. much more than that. But what's so clever about about the score? I think Edith, you're absolutely right about that that approach. When he when he saw the first cut, which had 90 percent temp in it uh he was kind of like lecturing us about he was like saying you know the, the the entire score recording of whatever it was i can't remember one of the big films that he did for 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 guy ritchie you know that the entire score king recording cost more than king arthur cost more than this film did i'm not gonna be able to give you that sound and we sort of like always thought well yeah actually probably you will be able to even if the <laughs> <laughs> and he did but I mean, he, what he was saying after that was, you know, the thing is, guys, it's all very well just using loads of different bits of temp, but a proper film score has got to marry everything together yeah. and have a and do exactly what you just said. It's got to have that sort of like that that through line and that sense of storytelling that everything, even if you're using very different sounds for, for certain sequences and different themes, everything has somehow got to kind of like wrap up together and integrate. Mm -hmm. And that's what he did so, so brilliantly. And I think it's essential for us because we saw that in McQueen is when you do documentary the way we do it with loads of different archives, thanks to stuff we shoot or I hand CGI like the skulls or the sculpture in this film, it's a very broad, it's, 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 it's a massive patchwork visually. And the music is almost the only thing, if you use one composer that do have this ability to do that through line or that through line, a, a very strong identity throughout, that almost holds it together. Does that make sense? Because it's not, you know, it's almost like if you shot a drama and every scene you use a different film stock back in the days or a different grade, or you change the actors, or, you know, it could get confusing. And the soundscape and the music are there to actually harness it together and we felt that that's why on McQueen we just use only Nyman even if it was his, 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 his back catalog and in there it was really important for us to just stick with 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 Daniel and just do Daniel because you can always mix it up with commercial tracks um, but no we just stick to one identity throughout. It's absolutely amazing. Um, do you mind if we quickly talk about um, McQueen and, and Michael Nyman? I mean we we talked about it in the past when I had the pleasure of doing some Q&As with you guys. But for people listening, you know, the idea of having Michael Nyman score your film, whether it's existing music or not, is such a brilliant thing. And the marriage was beautiful. Can you talk a little bit about the, the history, though, of Michael with, you know, with the film, but also with Lee? McQueen adored the piano, the soundtrack. That's one thing. He, he worked, you know, it's, it was in one of the films that really moved him and inspired him. And he used to listen to it you know, working in the office. Some of his colleagues and collaborators remember that. And even furthermore, and that was one of the really exciting things that happened to us when we first met Michael to discuss the film. He did come. That wasn't really hard to, with Michael Nyman, it wasn't too hard to get a meeting with him because it was Alexander McQueen, nothing to do with us. He didn't care about us. But the fact that there was a, a project about, my, um, uh, about uh, Lee, but he had composed a track for Saraband Called Saraband for was it the Windows of Culloden, wasn't it? For it was and, it was the one with Kate, with Kate the, yeah. exactly the the Holiday. FMO, and last second Lee didn't use it, so that track never being used, and he used uh, Schindler's List, didn't he? The final track from Schindler's List, and I think Michael always hold that against him but he actually when we sat down with him in a tiny little office where we were editing McQueen he made us listen to it he had he obviously had written it but he had just really played it quickly doodle again on his piano and he felt the track was amazing but actually to try to use a post-mortem track of something that should have happened almost that was composed for Alexander McQueen and and not being used that was like an amazing opportunity to to not miss
was very, very straight with us saying that we wouldn't have the time nor the money to do a, a, a composed soundtrack for the film. But with the time scale we had to do McQueen and actually the way we were making McQueen, it was great to work with this catalogue because it was almost like the reverse of you make the film and then you have, you have someone to try to express from the temps the same emotion you want. We could actually choose the music you know, almost create the emotion of the dialogue or visually from the music because the music was there. It was almost like a reverse, a bit like the process of a music video where you have the emotion triggered by a track and you go out there to recreate the visuals that you feel as a, as a filmmaker kind of match that. And I, I, I personally really enjoyed the process, which almost was done the same with Daniel because Daniel constantly sent us stuff so we could constantly edit anyway. It's almost like he was creating as before yeah. we had shot stuff and... Vice versa. I, I think you really sort of you, you kind of summed it up with Michael. I mean, the interesting thing about Michael was was that he his music is kind of quite analogous to McQueen's work. You know, Izzy Blow used to say, it, it, you know, McQueen is all about sabotage and tradition, and that's very much that's very much um, the the quality of Michael's music. I mean, you have these sort of like baroque chord progressions but sort of done in a kind of savage modern way and and it, it, it just felt so so perfect Yeah, we had, he basically gave us, I, I remember when he finally agreed that he's definitely going to do it. And, uh, you know, he, we'd heard that amazing Saraband, uh, but he said, I said, right, here you go. And he sent us a drop, he put a drop box with something like 80 hours of music in there. And what was so interesting was that obviously Ian and I, we knew his film music, but we didn't know his concert music. And, and, he, and, and we didn't know stuff that he composed for other media. And he had recomposed as well, Peter, some of the film score, because sometimes with the studio, he didn't own the rights. And yeah. Michael has got an issue with that. So he actually... Re-recorded. Re-recorded and added, you know, just made it slightly different. So you had a slight different... You had, you recognised something, but it still was slightly... The texture of it was slightly different. That yeah. was quite interesting. And you go into these areas that sort of like really kind of quite experimental music as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and collaborations that he'd done that were, you know, fascinating. And so we, we drew on all of that... And obviously we had to use the piano because it was Lee's, you know, it was actually, as Ian said, it was his, it was his favourite score. But, 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 but the thing we didn't know was that at McQueen's memorial at St Paul's Cathedral, Michael actually played um, the score of the piano and, and everybody was just in tears, obviously. So we knew we had to use, we, we had to use that theme, uh, which made, Michael now has a hate-love relationship with because that's what everyone knows of him.
was um, it was an interesting. I mean, the nicest one of the nicest things that happened to us on McQueen was when we showed the film to Michael for the first time, complete, and he kind of came out and he said that that was the best. It was the best that his music had ever been used in a film. Was what wow. he. Put. And that was like that was uh, that was yeah, him saying that Paul Greengrass had messed it up in the you know and you're like okay <laughs> we we will just say that to Edith Bowman we won't say that to you <laughs> yeah I've been saving that for you oh my god that's amazing it, it was he was also pissed off with us at one point because we took one cue out um, and just replaced it with sound design and he said oh yeah well you will be these pretentious sort of like. <laughs> pretentious auteur filmmakers you know not using my music but that was I do remember the, the the opening of the film in Italy he was with connecting with Fashion Week and he came as well as um, what's his uh, name? R- so, R- Romeo, Romeo Gili mm-hmm. and they they we had them there and we went for dinner really late you know in uh, that Italian things they mm-hmm. was friends of your dad as well isn't it Peter the, yeah and uh, I felt it was it was a bit of a surreal mo- surreal moment you know just having pasta in Italy with Michael lives in Milan and in Italy and Mexico actually funnily enough because I lived in Mexico for years wow. anyway um, yeah it was, it, 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 it was in, in both their own rights you know younger and slightly older um, British music composers they they the amazing people. I'm so, I mean, these two films that I've, I've been lucky enough to speak to you about, uh, you know, McQueen and, and, and Rise in Phoenix. Do you, do you know, and I love that almost that, you know, when you're talking about the connection and the, and Rise in Phoenix almost coming from an experience with McQueen. I, I love that kind of connection be- between them. Do you know what you're working on together next at all yet? Is that, have you got plans for that or is this still too fresh, I guess? Still quite fresh. It's been really hard. This one, the thing on McQueen, we took a year of traveling, isn't it, Peter? We went to a lot of, you know, the film was shown all over the world and he had a lot of uh, cinema premieres, which yeah. these days it's impossible. And because we were with Netflix and a streamer, we spent six months a year on the road with McQueen, which was one of the great things that, you know, in the hotels or in between the, the things. So we were brainstorming a lot, isn't it, Peter? We were talking, we, we developed a TV series for some people. So we've developed quite a lot of, of things. But this time it feels, you know, we finished the film the week, last week of July, first week of August. And no. it was out. Yeah, yeah. No, it was even later, actually, because, uh, yeah. No. I mean, finished it was. Then we had, you yeah, know, you oh had, you had to do Oh, my God. Then we had checks. We yeah. had some reviews to do. But, and that was already six weeks late because, isn't it, because of COVID. We were supposed to finish around mid-June, but I kind of, yeah, yeah. you know, working remotely, et cetera. So, so literally we just, you know, just coming out of you just it finished and, it then, really? Yeah. And it's already there and it's already been somehow consumed by, the not the media, but the press a little bit. It's, had, you know, it's it's a bit... It's totally an opposite experience than on McQueen. That yeah. and I, th- I think me and Peter are a little bit like. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's like what I was saying about at the start, where I got that opportunity to go in a studio for two days, and then I kind of like That's was it. exhausted by it. That's yeah. it for now. What you know, I don't know when I'm going to be able to yeah. kick back in. We had a mad, mad telephone call uh, from a mad musician. We can't say more than that. But if that film happened. It's mental because he's mentally genius. Oh, yeah, but but you know, does his it, name, his first, well, his personality <laughs> start with the same letter for the first name and the surname? No, okay, no, it's not no. who I was thinking of. No, 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 no. Suddenly, so I was like, I was looking at the letters. No, okay. Now it's when you started talking about names and names probably changing. Someone that tends to change his names, oh, man, and it's right. not Prince. Okay, before before I go, I have to show you something. Stay there for one second. One second. I love the fact that I can see Stanley Kubrick just down there. Please tell me it's in here because I remember, I think I sent you a picture of it on on a DM. I found my ticket to to one of the McQueen shows. To the McQueen show. Yeah, here it is. Got it. I've 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 got it. One of my old scrapbooks. So there you go. Look. Amazing. Oh, that's that's it. That's number thirteen. Yeah. That's the show that we were talking about. Yeah, there's my ticket. That's incredible. And it's dedicated to his dog, right? Yeah, yeah it says... Uh, Minzy, Minzy and oh, Minky. Dedicated to dog Minter, my dog Minter. Minter. Yeah, well, that's number 13. That's yeah. his 13th Spring, show. Spring, summer, 99, Sunday, the 27th of September, 8pm. 
The Gatliff Road Warehouse, Gatliff Road, Victoria, SW1. So glad I found that to show you guys. Yeah, 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 no, it's amazing. Yeah, I was there my friend Esther. Yeah, used to be my boss at MTV. We went to that together. It was extraordinary. I'm so glad we got the chance to talk about, you know, and, and it's so lovely as well to to be able to talk about Rising Phoenix and, and the score and, you know, particularly, uh, it's lovely to hear you talk, Peter, about listening to the show as well, but but Daniel and I think the synergy and the, whatever goes on behind the scenes, what we get to see on screen is just, is magnificent. It really, really is. But also it's been lovely to remind people about McQueen, you know, if, if they haven't seen it, to go and see it because it's, a, it's a, a beautiful film as well. Thank you yeah. so much for your time, Peter. And it's always a joy to chat to you. Uh, the weird thing is for people, no problem. Thank people you. don't care who listen to this, but we're just about to go and do a bath thing in like an hour's time. So I get more of you. Yay. <laughs> um, but thank you so much. It's a real pleasure to have you on soundtracking and to, yeah. We could to, just, we could just play soundtracking tonight. <laughs> <laughs> just go and have a no, cup of tea. No, I want to talk more. Just... <laughs> <laughs> um, thanks so much. So great to see you both, and massive congratulations on the film as well. Thank you very much. Thank you. We see you in a couple of hours. Yeah, an hour and a half. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> From the score to Rising Phoenix, that baby by Daniel Pemberton, rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with Ian Bonnot and Peter Ettigy. My huge thanks to Ian and Peter for taking the time to talk to me. It's always a pleasure to chat to those two. Uh, Rising Phoenix, as I said earlier, is available to watch on Netflix now, and I really meant it when I say it is a truly remarkable documentary that you all need to watch immediately. There's a playlist for this show uh, up on our Spotify page. All you need to do is head to Spotify and search for Soundtracking with Edith Bowman. That means that even though we can only play little clips of the music within the podcast for every episode, we have the tracks on their playlist that you can listen to in their entirety in the order that they appear. So there are over 200 playlists for you to go and check out with the most extraordinary collection of music. Now, you can find all of the episodes from the podcast at edithbowman.com, including my chat with Daniel Pemberton, who we're very much hoping to get on once again in the very near future, considering he has about 4,000 other projects on the go as we speak. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK. And please do subscribe to our YouTube channel too, where I'm putting together a regular show as a kind of companion piece to this podcast. So I give you little excerpts that you can see of some of our guests that we have on the podcast. But there are also extra guests up there who don't quite fit within this sort of soundtracking parameter, but are people that we love, we want to enthuse about and we're eager to chat to so there's a nice mix up there please do go and check it out next up we have a woman who's many things and hugely talented in all those departments songwriter composer and producer for michael winterbottom for over 15 years melissa parmenter joins us next week she is fabulous and i very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then